good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, great. Well, uh, as you heard, my name is Darla Benjamin, and I'm the Director of Outreach at, here at Grace. And it's really great to be with you on this July 4th. So happy 4th of July. Yeah, right? You know, um, this is a time that uh, I'm, I'm assuming later today, early evening, you'll be out on maybe a, a blanket, out on a lawn somewhere, kind of getting yourself situated and ready for fireworks, or maybe in a lawn chair. If, you, if you're like me and getting down and up, it's getting a little more hard. Uh, maybe you're in a lawn chair. But we're, we're going to be out and waiting for the, the things that happen in the sky, right? All of the fireworks. And I'm kind of surprised every year, I don't know why, at how long it takes to get dark. And I'm always very excited about that until it's fireworks time, because they don't start until it's dark. And so um, we spend a lot of time waiting and waiting, right? But this is the most probably American tradition that I can think of, is that we gather together, and it's usually around food. Everybody usually takes food when you're gathering together. Maybe some sparklers. Yeah, any sparklers still? Yeah, yeah, so we have sparklers, because we have a whole lot of things to be grateful for, right? We wait, we see everything, all the, all the money that's spent on all the fireworks that go up, all of the different colors and the, the loud sounds, all of that, because we're celebrating. And as Americans, we have a whole lot to be, cel to be celebratory for. We have a whole lot of freedoms in this country. And, and you know, sometimes we don't always you know, get it right, but we have a whole lot of freedoms. Things like we don't have to worry about um, our physical safety with other countries, right? We have military that, that protects um, us from invasions. We have religious freedom. You can come to church this morning. You can go to any church you want to. You're not told what you have to believe. We're not, we can attend school. There's not certain of us, certain individuals of us that can't, you know, are told you can't go to school or you have to go to this school. We can shop wherever and whenever we want. But here's the thing, no matter how many legal or financial or religious freedoms we have, we are still going to be in bondage because Jesus is the only source of true freedom. And you know, as director of outreach, um, I've had the opportunity to travel to different parts of the world. And um, a couple of years ago, I went to Morocco. And um, in Morocco, it's a, a Muslim country. And there are um, some people there, sub-Saharan Africans, who have been trafficked there. That means they have been brought to Morocco. They've had all of their things taken away from them, any papers they had. And they are stuck in Morocco and actually put into bondage, uh, physical bondage. They have no hope anymore. They have um, no physical hope anyway. Uh, they have no jobs to go to. Like, they are literally stuck in Morocco and sold into slavery. Well, while I was there, um, we went to a sub-Saharan uh, African church service. And these people who, uh, they had faith in Jesus, right? It was a church service, but they had no reason to celebrate, no reason to have hope, except for the fact that they were free in Jesus. Free in Jesus. Nothing else could have given them the great joy that I saw as I worshiped alongside them. You see, do you, do you know anyone like that, like who is, is struggling, but has a freedom, a, a sense of joy that is beyond any kind of explanation? You can just tell by the joy that emanates from them that even when the odds are stacked against them, they have a peace, a peace in the middle of a churning sea. They have strength and courage 
when they are attacked because they have the true freedom that comes only from knowing Jesus. Today, we are going to continue in John. Uh, you might have thought we were done with chapter 7 last week. There's one more verse. Technically, it's in chapter 8, as we'll see, but it's, it's denoted as verse 53, so that comes from chapter 7. Um, but before we get into this, uh, you're going to find it's a pretty familiar story. But before we do that, let's just take a few minutes and pray. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And uh, especially today, I just, I just pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that who do not have those freedoms, um, but who have the true freedom that you bring. And Lord, as we look at this story today, um, I just ask that you would uh, open our ears to hear what you have for us to hear, Lord. And um, just bless our time together this morning. In your precious and holy name, I pray. Amen. Now, if you are following along in your Bible, you will notice that when you get to chapter 8 um, or chapter 7, verse 53, it has a little bit of an italicized kind of wording in front of it. Everybody see that, have that? And maybe you're wondering, why is this italicized? And does it matter? Well, what it means is that... Um, this was not, this passage, this story was not in the original manuscripts. And so maybe you're thinking, well, then why is it now? Like, can I trust that? Can I believe um, that it's true? Like, why, you know, should we care about this if it wasn't in the original manuscripts? And the answer is yes, obviously, we're going to look at it today. Uh, it's currently found in all the modern Bible translations. And God breathed is God breathed, Amen. And it is um, good for teaching and rebuking and learning. And so we are going to take a look at this. Now, this passage has often been preached from the standpoint of like looking at sinful actions and the judgment of those sins. But we're in John. And if we have learned anything over the last many weeks, um, in John, Paul uses the word sin to refer to an unbelief. And that's really something that I had to wrestle with because I have always looked at this passage uh, in just a little bit different light about it. It's all about the physical sins that are happening there. Um, but I think uh, that uh, God has some really great things for us to look at and ponder and learn about freedom with this passage. So let's take a look. We're going to start by reading the entire passage and then we'll come back and pick it apart a little bit. All right, here we go. Then... This is verse 53 of 7. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. 
neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So let's just kind of set the scene here for what's happening. What do we know right away? Well, Jesus had gone away and had come back and returns to the temple to continue teaching the people that were gathered there. When into the gathering walked the Pharisees, right? It says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman in a woman caught in adultery. They're not alone. They show up at, this, at Jesus's classroom, basically, um, with a woman, probably scantily clad because we know why she's being brought to them. And I'm sure she was not escorted on the arm and gently brought in, but likely dragged there. They made her stand before this group of people and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now they have put her on display in the middle of a group gathered to hear Jesus teach. This is not by accident. They didn't happen to find Jesus at the temple, right? This was a happening thing. Listen to this. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. women. Now what do you say? They were using these questions as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They had no real accusation to have him arrested. And so they're asking him, hey, here, I've brought something that is actually a sin. Now what are you going to do about it, right? They knew, uh, they brought him, they knew that he would be in the temple and they knew that he would be in a crowd and they needed something to pin on Jesus so that they could have a solid accusation against him. And what better way to do that than in kind of an open court, right? Have a whole lot of witnesses to what he's going to do. So they bring this woman, place her on center stage, heavy with shame and exposed, and says, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? Now, I can imagine the Pharisees kind of standing, whoops, standing with their arms crossed, kind of walk, rocking back and forth on their heels, like, like looking around the crowd, what, what? Look at this woman, what are you going to do about it, Jesus? Right? They think that they have Jesus right where they want him. See, they knew the law, and Jesus was caught between a rock and a hard place. If Jesus stoned the woman, then he wasn't following the law, because the law said that both the man and woman should be brought forward, or I'm sorry, if Jesus stoned the woman, yep, brought the man and woman forward together. And if Jesus let her go, then he's also not following the law because the punishment for adultery was to be stoned to death. And on top of that, Jews were not allowed to carry out sentencing. So they had him there too. So they sat back and waited for Jesus's, Jesus to respond. And likely they readied themselves for his arrest. Finally, right? But Jesus is not confined by the law. So here's Jesus's response. You ready for it? Jesus says nothing. He could have ranted and, raved, um, ranted and raved, but he said nothing. Instead, he bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, the Bible does not really tell us what Jesus wrote, right? But what if, what if what he wrote on the ground in front of the woman, but still visible by the Pharisees who are standing around her and the teachers of the law, what if he wrote down the different sins represented in the lives of those who could see it? I'm sure, you know, adultery. I'm sure the woman saw that, that, that one laid out for her. Cheat. That one probably hit home for one of somebody in the group, right? Anger, lust, gossip, envy. Word after word after word, Jesus writes. 
And all the while, the group continues to pummel him with questions. The man's writing in the dirt, and they're still questioning him. They ignore what Jesus is writing. They ignore the sins that he has written down in the dirt. They are unwilling to look at their own issues and face their own undeserving lives. Instead, they continue to try to trap him into saying something, anything that will give them cause to arrest him. Peppering Jesus with questions and redirection, but this is the wrong focus. So Jesus straightens up and says to them this, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now in Romans 2, 1, it says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You see, scripture has a way, has a habit of calling us out on our own self-righteous behavior. Amen? <laughs> yeah. Just as Jesus is calling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law out, it's a reminder that Jesus is Jesus, and we are not. We're not pure and blameless. There are not sins that are greater than others. We tend to rationalize our own sin and elevate the sins of others, yeah? Jesus knows the sin of, sins of the woman, and he knows the sins of the group. He's caused them to come face to face with them, and he says, hey, if you are clean and blameless, then you can condemn. Go ahead, pick up that stone and throw the first stone. But here's the truth. The truth is that Jesus is the only one, the only one who has the right to condemn. He's the only pure and blameless one. He's the one who has come to fulfill the law to be the sacrifice that sets us free from the bondage of sin. There's no one else that can do that. Now, I imagine that the, the woman was probably bracing herself, right? She's looking down, full of shame, full of guilt, bracing herself, steadying herself against what she thought would probably be the sting of a stone coming her way. But that sting never comes. Instead, in verse 8, it says, again, I love Jesus' response in that. Again, he stoops down and he writes on the ground. After Jesus extends the offer to the group to throw the first stone, he goes back to writing with his finger in the dirt. Now, again, we don't know what Jesus actually writes when he stoops down again and continues to write in the dirt. But what if he writes the word, just believe? What if in the dirt he prints for all to see what he that he offers freedom from sin through belief? If only they would believe in him in what he has to offer them? What if he invites them with that one word to examine their heart, to weigh the costs, and to make a choice? Remain in bondage to sin or find freedom through belief in Jesus? Well, there are some different responses to the people in our encounter. The first one is the religious response. The religious leaders, they certainly show their choice in this matter. Listen to their response. It says in verse nine, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Everybody dissipates. Everybody turns 
and walks away, except the woman. The Pharisees and the teachers, they turn away. They see their sin, remember writing it on the ground, they see their sin, but they refuse to face it. They don't wanna have anything to do with it. They choose to overlook the state of their own soul. If they weren't gonna get from Jesus what they wanted from Jesus, which was an arrest, right? Then they weren't gonna stick around. They weren't willing to hear, they weren't interested in Jesus's offer of freedom. They stayed in their unbelief of who Jesus was. And what about the woman? So how does the woman respond? Well, only, only the woman acknowledges that she is indeed in bondage to her sin. She stands facing Jesus, watching as his finger, his finger as it moves through the dirt. What if she sees Jesus offer her freedom written in that one word, believe? written next to where he has already written her sin, adultery. Psalm 32, five says this, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Fingers had been pointed at the woman in judgment and now fingers were outlining grace and mercy but she's the only one who stopped to accept it. One by one, the others in the group turned and walked away, refusing to acknowledge their sin. They relied on the law, focused on the sin of others, and denied their need to be set free, except the woman. Now, what about the crowd? Remember, this was all done in the midst of a crowd. The crowd that was listening, they're listening to Jesus teach. Well, verse nine says, one by one, they left until only the woman and Jesus remained. So that's not just talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders, right? The entire crowd has also left. Now they weren't privy to the words written in the dirt. I'm sure they couldn't see that. And I'm sure they struggled with what they were watching unfold because they may not have heard all the words that were exchanged, but they're watching this encounter. And whether they understood or heard or read anything that Jesus did, said or wrote, they walked away. Now, the crowd was not exempt, and, and we're gonna look here in Romans 1.20, but the crowd is not exempt from knowing or having the um, understanding of who Jesus is. Because in Romans 1.20, it says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I mean, we know that too, right? When I'm out on my kayak, I feel the sun on my face. There's something that stirs in my heart. When you see the beauty in a sunset, doesn't your heart just kind of leap a little bit? Or when you see the power of a waterfall, there's something that happens inside us that even if we don't know the name of Jesus, our soul, our heart knows there's something it's missing. We find comfort in creation and experience God's invisible qualities and our hearts understand because of what we see around us, because of his creation. So the crowd, us, we are all without excuse. 
So back to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and even the crowd that had come to Jesus, hear Jesus speak, they all left. Only the woman, the admitted adulteress, was left to face Jesus. Now, Jesus would have been well within his right. Remember, he's the the, uh, pure and blameless one that he could have judged and condemned and carried out punishment there. As the only blameless one, everything was on his side. The ball was in his court. He could have picked up a stone, but he didn't. Remember, this passage is found in John, like we said. And again, John was written through the lens of sin as unbelief. So it's here that I believe the understanding of sin fits within John's definition. Jesus knew the heart of this woman. He knew all that had happened in her life, all that she had done, every single decision she had ever made, the intimate sin that she had committed, and the moment that she chose to believe. And he chose to not condemn her. Look at the final few sentences Um, of this passage in verses 10 and 11. It says, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Those that had accused this woman all left. She is left standing with Jesus alone. It's an intimate moment between the two of them. He could have told her, leave and never commit adultery again. But this is where the lens of John's definition of sin is very clear. The means for the interaction between Jesus and the woman was her sin of adultery. That's what brought the two of them face to face, right? If she hadn't been caught in adultery, they maybe would never have met. But Jesus makes an offer. He makes a declaration. He says, I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. This shows a confirmation of the change in her life from from bondage to freedom. Go now, now that you understand, now that you have experienced freedom in me and live in that freedom. Leave the life that you had before before you knew me, and now move into a new life. You're a new creation. The woman has been given mercy and grace instead of condemnation and judgment. She's been given new life, one of freedom, one in which she has the power to step out of bondage. She's free to live in her new life. Like I said, she's a new creation. Now, imagine Jesus's face when he looked at the woman, a face full of mercy and grace, kindness and peace, things that the woman likely would have found very foreign. Not many people looking at her that way. Can you imagine what, it must, have been, what must have been on the woman's face? A relationship had been built. She was known by Jesus. He had freed her from the bondage of her sin. I can imagine that her face reflected maybe for the very first time, peace, strength, love, and worth. So let me ask you this, after after looking at this passage, what's our response? Like where do you find yourself in this encounter? 
Are you the crowd? Are you looking for answers, but you're not sure what the questions are? Do you feel a tug or a sense that there's something more if only you knew what it was you were looking for? Do you think maybe it might be Jesus? Or have you been sitting in church for a while now, listening to the teaching, but keeping things kind of at arm's length? Not sure what you, if, whether you want to hear the truth or believe the truth. Or maybe you're the Pharisees. Maybe you identify with the Pharisees. Looking for what you want him to be instead of the truth of who he is and what he calls you to. Maybe you are so focused on the offenses of others that you are defined by Matthew 7, 3, and 4, which says this, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Or maybe when you're confronted by your sin, you turn and walk away like the Pharisees did unwilling to see your sin, or maybe you're content to live in bondage to it. How do you respond to that? Maybe you don't even notice you have sin. Maybe you're just so blind to it, you don't even see it. Or are you the woman? Have you been brought face to face with Jesus? confronted by your sin and believed that Jesus is who he says he is, the way, the truth, the life? Have you acknowledged it and believe that Jesus offers you freedom for your sin? Or if you've been freed from your sin, do you live like it? I want you to do something for me. It's a little interactive part. I want you to hold your hands out with your palms up, and I want you to squeeze your fists as hard as you can. And I want you to do that till I tell you not to do that, okay? So squeeze super, super hard. Sometimes we believe the truth about Jesus. We believe that he has forgiven our sins and has set us free from the bondage of sin. But we don't really live like free people. John 8.32 says this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then John 8, 36 says, so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But we hold on to the shame and the guilt of our sin, even when Jesus has set us free from it. We think about it and hold on to the weight of it, even though we've been forgiven. We don't lean into the freedom that Jesus gives us. It's like saying, I believe you've forgiven me. Well, maybe. Um, actually, I think it's just too much. I still need to remember it. Maybe I'm not really supposed to be free from it. Folks, <laughs> that is not what God intended for us. Psalm 103.12 says this, as far as the East is from the West, so far has he removed your transgressions from us. And when we hold on to guilt and shame and anger and frustration, we are taking the control for our sin back. We're not believing that Jesus has truly freed us. If we are going to live in the true freedom that only comes from Jesus, then we have to stop putting the chains back on. So let's live as free people. Now I want you to open your fists and hold your hands out flat with your palms up. What do you feel? 
release, a lightness. When you let go of the chains of bondage to sin, then there is a release that we get from nothing else. There is a lightness. When you try to control and hold on to what Jesus has freed you from, then you are missing out on what God really has for you. Look at your hands. When your hands are open, you have a posture of receiving. You're ready to receive what God has for you. And not just that, you're also poised to be able to give a hand to someone else to help them to see that they can release what God has forgiven of them. We don't have to hold on to that. So what would it look like in your life if you recognized the freedom that you could have in Jesus? If you believed that he has provided it for you and if you really lived in that freedom? What if you let go of the chains that Jesus has released you from? What if as a church, we lived out our true identity of freedom within our own community? What if we spoke freedom over each other instead of speaking judgment and condemnation that we have no authority to do in the first place? On this day, as we celebrate our nation's freedom with parades and picnics and fireworks, shouldn't we at least throw off the chains that the bondage of sin has created and celebrate the spiritual freedom that Jesus has provided and start living as free people? Yeah? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the freedom that you give to us. When you throw our sin away, Lord, we are truly free and you are the only source of that true freedom, Lord. And Father, as we uh, think about the freedoms we have in our country, let us remember the freedom that we have in you. And Father, I just pray that um, any change that we're still holding on to, any guilt and shame or anger, Lord, I pray that today we release that because you, the true source of our freedom, has already forgiven us of that. And Father, if we are here and we, um, we are just kind of listening and we're not sure what we think about the truth that you have for us, Father, I pray that you would um, touch our hearts that you would draw us to you, that we would not be like the Pharisees and walk away, not like the crowd and walk away, but like the woman that says, it is me, I've sinned. I see that you forgive me, Lord, and I wanna walk in that. Thank you for who you are, Father, and what you do in and through us. In your precious and holy name I pray, amen.